Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books oh, to get you excited. And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May good. the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. What's up, everyone? This is Chad, and today's interview guest is Robin Hansen. Robin is a professor of economics at George Mason University, and he is an author of many books. The book that we're going to talk about the most today is called The Elephant in the Brain. It's a great read and it's useful for anyone who wants to study the biases that many of us are pre-programmed with and learn about how we can overcome them to think more logically and rationally and ultimately be more effective with our decisions. Robin is also an associate researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. That is a fascinating group of people doing really important work. So let's jump into today's interview with Robin Hansen. Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. This is uh, exciting to have you here. Your latest book, Elephant in the Brain, uh, is out. I've been listening to the audio book in preparation for the interview, and uh, it's an excellent book. What inspired you to write well, it? My and credit goes to my co-author, Kevin Simler. So he's not here interviewing, <laughs> but we should we should have a moment of reverence for him. Yeah, let's give a shout out to him. He, he did an awesome job as well. What inspired you to write the book? Well, fundamentally, I am an older economist. I'm almost 60 now. And so I've had a long career. And over this long career, I've collected puzzles. I've collected uh, weird things that don't make sense. And this is an attempt to make sense. <laughs> of a whole bunch of things that otherwise 
don't make sense. So uh, this is my way of saying, oops, we've been making a big mistake. So when, when you're working on books, do you collect all of the stories and anecdotes and data sets and everything? And then once they hit a critical mass, you decide, okay, this has to become a book or have you, did you already have the idea for this book? What was the genesis like? So this book is based on a set of blog posts that I've been writing over a long period. So the core idea has been developed and elaborated uh, many times on the blog. And I didn't really know I was going to write a book on it, <laughs> this until my co-author proposed that. And so I hadn't been really collecting things other than having all the blog posts I could go back and look at. Uh, and so I'm, I guess I'm less organized in the sense I don't really know what I'm going to be writing about next. And so I <laughs> don't have big files all organized around it. But when I do start a book, especially, you know, if I'm just by myself, I basically just write and then change and write and change and, and keep going until I'm tired of it. I love it. So you're writing this book and as you're writing it and now you're out, you're talking about it, you're writing more about it. How are you explaining the elephant in the brain to people? What is a, an elevator type explanation of it for someone that says elephant in the brain, I'm terrified. What's wrong with my mind? You do lots of things in your life. You go to school, you go to the doctor, you go to work, you sleep, you brush your teeth. And for each of these things you do, you have a story. You have a reason that you give about why you do that. And the message of our book is you're just wrong a lot in a lot of those stories. You are just wrong about why you do a lot of things you do in your life. And you don't know that or you're not very conscious of it. And that's the elephant in your brain. The elephant in the room is the thing that we all know is in the room, but we don't want to talk about. The elephant in your brain is the thing that you know that's in your brain, but you don't want to talk about. And you don't really want to talk about the fact that you aren't being fully honest, in public at least, about why you do most of the things you do. So what are some of your favorite examples? I know, so my favorite example that I encountered in the book was in the beginning, you you basically drop a hint that a lot of our healthcare system could almost be this elaborate game of kiss the boo-boo almost. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty provocative statement. Do you think that you made that statement or, or what, do you, what do you think there? Yes, <laughs> and we yeah. made that in station, statement intentionally and um, we think it's right. Now, the structure of the book for readers who haven't read it is the first third is roughly setting up the basic framework of saying you could plausibly be wrong about why you do things. It's not crazy to imagine that. Uh, we talk about why animals and humans might be the sort of creatures who would be wrong about why they do things. But then merely knowing that it's possible doesn't really convince you it's common. And so the last two thirds of the book goes over 10 specific areas of life. And in each area tries to convince you with details that you are in fact wrong about each of those areas. And medicine and health is probably the area that will surprise most, the most readers. So in other areas, you may not and kind of accept our story and even think you kind of knew that already. But even so in all the areas, the, the story that you usually say isn't perhaps the story that you know. So for example, uh, you say you go to school most likely to learn the material. But if I get you in a bar late at night and, and get you to be honest and nobody's listening, you might admit you just got went there for the degree. Completely agree. I, when I look back at my degree, there was absolutely no thought process for the undergraduate degree other than how can I stop my family from giving me a hard time, basically. Right. But that's not what we say in public. So if you were a yep. political candidate or uh, you were writing a letter of application to grad school or something, and in that more public context, you were asked to explain why you wanted to go to school, you wouldn't talk about that. You would talk about 
you know, the thing you're supposed to say, which is learning the material. And so in all these areas, a lot of us kind of know that the thing we usually say isn't entirely the truth or even mostly the truth, uh, but it varies from area to area. So each of us have an area of our life that's the most sacred to us. And you'll be the most resistant to admitting that the usual story isn't what you do in that area that's sacred to you. But in other people's areas, eh, you'll be okay with it. <laughs> so art might be your thing. And if I tell you that in art, you're not really there about beauty or insight, then you'll, you may resist me because art is your thing. But if art isn't your thing, you may not and say, yeah, of course, people are being artists to show off and to try to be impressive and maybe meet dates. And so in our society, we happen to be especially reverent about medicine. Across time and space, the United States right here in 2119 is near a peak of reverence for medicine. We have all these medical TV shows and we spend 18% of GDP on it and we are really into medicine. And so if I tell you medicine isn't about what you think, that'll be harder to swallow just because more likely medicine is sacred to you. But I'll just say it, you think medicine is about health. You think and say you will go to the doctor or go to the hospital because you're sick and they can get you well. It's a perfectly plausible story. It's just not as true as you say. So what type of data have you found that helps shine a light onto people's real motivations or maybe motivations that they don't want to acknowledge about medicine? Because like you mentioned, that's a huge sacred cow and it's still very, very sacred to so many people. So what does the data say though? So the, the structure here is that we are pretending because it looks better to pretend. And we can't really pretend unless we give some gloss of appearance to fitting the pretense. Uh, that means none of these things are obvious. If you say you go to school to learn the material, well, that kind of fits with a lot of what you do at school. I mean, there you are in class, uh, reading books, listening to lectures, taking tests. I mean, it fits a bit. <laughs> You have to dig a bit to find out that you aren't actually there to learn the material because you, you have a story you're trying to tell and you're doing the minimal surface things to fit with that story so that uh, you don't get caught out too easily. And that means it's going to be a little work to tease out the real motives. How can we do that? Well, it's all in the key data patterns. That is, we look at patterns of behavior and ask, do those fit the stories? So, for example, in school, we might say, well, you know what, when the teacher is sick, do you say, boo, I'm not getting to learn the stuff that I was going to get to learn? Uh, they're cheating me out of my extra <laughs> lecture material. That's what you should be saying if you're there to learn the material that you, you paid for this lesson and they're cheating you out of it. Uh, whereas if you just wanted the degree with as minimal learning as possible, well, then you might be thrilled that the uh, teacher took the day off, right? So that's the kind of detail you have to be looking at. So, sure. In each of these areas, the overall surface pattern will fit the usual story. In order to find out the usual story isn't quite right, we have to dig a bit. And so then it'll all be about what are these patterns of behavior and what best fits those patterns. So I love that we're talking about patterns of behavior because it's very easy for us, especially in today's digital technological world, where we can say things and espouse views all day long online, and we can create these stories about what we're doing and why. But if you get down to it uh, and you focus in on what people are doing offline or in their real lives, it's a completely different story. 
and the avatar and the social media persona that they create has nothing to do with what they do in daily life. Um, I'm really curious about what are you seeing on GMU's campus and what are you noticing with students now when you either present them with this research or when you talk to them about these issues? How are students responding or faculty for that matter? Well, I I think people in general know they're supposed to say a certain kind of thing. And if you start to say something that doesn't fit that, they kind of look around and see, am I on stage? Or is it okay to admit things that nobody will hear me say? This is the nature of human hypocrisy. We all are supposed to say certain kind of things in certain contexts, and we all kind of know that's not true. But we don't want to be caught on camera or on record right? in the certain sort of context denying the things you're supposed to say. So our first reaction is to look around. Who's listening? Who could quote me? Uh, is this person asking someone that's likely to prosecute me for this or to you know, quote me to others? Or are we in some sort of friendship-related mode here, jocular fun mode, where it's more okay to be honest? So is that... I mean, in my mind, I'm pretty terrified right now. So, because what we're basically saying is that people are so afraid of fear or, you know, there's this real fear of reprisal from members of their peer group or the community or future employers. This seems like a horrible thing. Would you agree? Or do you think that, no, this is just the way things have always been and these type of social norms are healthy? I mean, What we're talking about in the book, Elephant in the Brain, is the common features of human behavior across history, across space. Yes, there's a lot of variation from place to place and time to time, but we're not focused on that variation. We think our first priority is to get just the basics right. Like, what is school typically about? What is medicine typically about? Sure. Yes, of course, in each particular context, it's going to vary, and it's complicated to figure out how it varies. But our first priority should know what, what the typical average is. Uh, so, so yes, today uh, you might feel some degree of wariness, but it isn't really that different than anybody else through history would have felt. Uh, and so the consequences are somewhat mild, but they're still important enough that we are wary. So, for example, there's a norm against bragging. It's a common human norm against bragging. And so that's why we're each mildly reluctant to brag. If, if, you, if somebody asks you a question, you might think, oh, I could just say this, and then you realize, oh, that would be bragging. And then you pause and you try to find another way to say it or another way to evade the question just because you know you're not supposed to brag. Now, if I ask you, well, what would happen if you bragged? Are we going to string you up by your thumbs? Are you going to lose your job? Are we going to kill your children? No, right? Somebody just might mention someday that you bragged. That'll be it. Right. Okay. Relatively mild consequences, but nevertheless, you feel it. You feel like, mm, don't really want to brag if I can avoid it because this is your human heritage of trying to follow these norms. Typically, no one violation is that big a deal, but it adds up over time. You're trying to to be in a habit where you can just be the sort of person that you want to seem to be. And when you examined healthcare and medicine, what was the biggest surprise that you found where you thought, where you were basically just shocked by what you found that people, why they were doing it? Well, the, the most dramatic pattern regarding medicine is that there's almost no correlation between medicine and health. We talk about medicine as if it were primarily about health. But, for example, we look at geographic variation. We look at places where they spend more on medicine, and those places aren't healthier. We have other kinds of random variation that doesn't seem to 
correlate much with health. And then we actually have randomized experiments, not a lot of them, but a few, where we assign some people to have cheap medicine and other people to have expensive medicine. And the people who had cheap medicine, well, they took more because it was cheap. And those people just weren't healthier. So the implications of this, or do you draw any type of policy recommendations, or do you have any uh, theories, or do you do any consulting with groups that are trying to reform the healthcare system? This seems to, you know, 18% of GDP is a lot. Well, let's start all the way back to the basics. I mean, the reason I wrote this book is because I think we social scientists and we humans have just been making this big consistent mistake for a long time. And this mistake has consequences for policy and for our lives. So um, we think we're saying a big thing with this book, and this is big news, uh, and that it has a lot of consequences all over the place. So uh, yes, of course, in an area like medicine or education, if you're just making the wrong assumption right from the start about what it's for, and you build up policy recommendations on the basis of that wrong assumption, well, you're just going to go pretty far wrong (laughs) in your conclusions uh, because you just started right out in the wrong place. It seems like the group of people that were are working on policy and in the, that system too, they're going to be distracted. Basically, like they're if they're not solving the problem and if they're they don't even know what they're actually solving, you basically have these large groups that are. Would you say they're completely adrift? Are, are they working in any type of logical? Their efforts are largely wasted <laughs> relative yeah. to what they could be doing if they were more targeted. But it's it's a little more complicated than that because. We want to pretend that we're doing, say, medicine for a particular reason, say health. And part of our pretense is wanting to have policy people who talk in those terms as well. And so it isn't just the policy people making some random mistake. They are being pushed to make that mistake because we reward them for making that mistake. Same for education researchers. We talk about education as if it's about learning the material. And so when an education researcher talks about education as if it's about learning the material, that sounds right to us. That sounds like the right sort of conversation that should be happening. And if they were to start to talk about something else, most people would go, what are you talking about? And so it would what, be a little off-putting. So, so we are responsible for inducing these policy people to talk about the wrong things. It's not just them making the mistake. What is a better conversation starter or what should the conversation be in, say, higher education? So in each of these areas, there's the thing we're really trying to do and the thing we're pretending to do. Now, let's assume that we're going to want to continue to pretend. Now, you could imagine a world where we stop the pretense. We just all open up and admit everything we're doing. That might be a good world. It's just not close to the world we're in. So my more mild recommendation is to say, okay, I'm going to assume we're going to continue to pretend. But now what you need to do is come up with proposals that let us continue to pretend, but now give us more of the thing we actually want. See, today what people do with policy is they offer proposals that give us more of the thing we pretend to want. And it turns out we listen to them, we nod, we, we think that's an important thing they're doing, and then we don't actually follow the recommendations. And so this is the consistent failure of policy, is that we have many thousands of policy experts working full-time to analyze policy and medicine and education and politics and many other areas. And we've assigned them this task of assuming that we're doing one thing and then they faithfully execute that task. They say, well, if what you were trying to do out of education is learn the material, well, then this is how you'd want to do it. And they come up with ways to learn the material faster. So education researchers have done that. Over decades, they found lots of ways 
we could each learn more material faster at school. And then schools know about that and they just don't adopt those things. And we don't pressure them to and nobody seems to care much. And similarly in medicine, we know lots of ways in which medicine could be more effective and less expensive. And yet we don't adopt them. So the problem is we kind of know we're not being honest about what we want here. And so we kind of know we don't want these recommendations we're getting on the basis of what we say we want. So what we need to do as policy people is to solve a harder problem, how to continue to pretend to give people what they pretend to want while actually giving them more of the thing they really want. If you could give them that, they'll really want that because you're giving them what they really want. Now, you still need to give them the cover probably to pretend what they want to pretend, but still that would be the straightforward strategy to produce actual more effective policy that actually gets adopted. But in order to do that, you'll have to know both what they pretend to want and you'll have to on the surface, let them continue to pretend. And then you'll have to give them more what they really want. And to do that, you'll have to know what it is they really want. That's fascinating. So one of the things you bring up in the book is mixed motive games. Could you tell us a little bit about what a mixed motive game is? Well, I think you're talking about the fact that we often have conflicting multiple motives in our behaviors. And that means we have to um, accommodate these different motives and decide how much weight to put on the different things we're doing. And like I was saying, when we're being somewhat hypocritical, we have to play this game of trying to act as if we were following one motive, but actually giving more weight to another motive because that's sure. what we really want to do. Um, and that's a bit tricky. But it's not as tricky as it might seem because people aren't actually trying that hard to discover us. We like the example of uh, the rule that you're not allowed to drink alcohol in public. So this is a common rule in many places. You're not allowed to drink alcohol in public. Police are supposed to enforce this rule. They mostly feel like it's not a very important rule. They wish they didn't have to enforce it, but they feel that's their job. So because they don't really want to enforce the rule, you can help them not see your alcohol. <laughs> that is, you can drink it out of a paper bag in public. Now, if you see somebody drinking some liquid out of a bottle in a bag in public, it's probably alcohol. <laughs> the police know that. They're not stupid. Nevertheless, they don't really want to prosecute you for drinking alcohol in public. They just feel like they have to. So if you give them that a little excuse, they're happy to pretend along with you that you're not drinking alcohol. And that's the sort of level of energy that we are all using in policing these various rules we have. So I talked about bragging before. You know what? We let people brag all the time. As long as they give a bit of a fig leaf of pretense, it's okay to brag. Let me tell you about the wonderful vacation I had last week. It was so relaxing. I'm kind of bragging, but I'm also saying, you're my friend. Don't you want to hear what I was doing last week? And you're willing to go along with that pretense to say, yeah, let's pretend you're trying to tell me about what you did last week. Because we're supposed to have these rules and we're supposed to follow them. And if somebody violates them, we're supposed to call them on it. That's kind of the rules we're supposed to be following, but we don't really want to do that. And so we let people get away with a lot. So for a lot of these things, the, the fig leaf is really thin. Mm -hmm. The pretense is, doesn't cover very much, but it, it doesn't need to because we're not trying very hard. Gotcha. So it seems like if we're going to start making enough progress to really get a handle on or overcome possible existential threats and, and really scary things that humanity is facing, 
we're going to have to reform our culture somewhat. We're going to need some pretty radical new ways of looking at things. I would think that. Or do you think that the most appropriate answer is through what you recommended, which is basically small nudges where we give people what they say they want. We keep addressing that, maybe more of it, but we also slide in what they actually want. Um, is it going to be a very slow process or do we need complete radical cultural reformation? All innovation has a spectrum of lumpiness. Mm. Most innovation is lots of little lumps, but a few innovations are big lumps. And even the big ones typically need to be worked out and tested in smaller versions. I don't think you really have to choose between small and big because the only really way to do big is to do a lot of small anyway. The only way to do big right, maybe, is uh, through small systems that work or something like that? Well, but just small trials. So, sure. for example, sure. prediction markets are one of my things, and I've advocated this concept that I've called futarchy as a way to use prediction markets and governance. And I've described it, how it could work at this grand national scale, but I tell people, but I think you should really try it on small scales and work our way up. We shouldn't suddenly adopt this on a national scale. We should try it sure. in a small church, in a small organization, and, and slowly, as it's successful on small scales, then do it on larger ones. The, the route to doing big radical change is via small radical change sure. uh, with an eye toward you know, scaling it up as it works better. Yeah, and especially unintended consequences too, because that's the beauty of small experiments. They allow you to see the things that you didn't know you didn't know or the things that you had no idea, nobody could have predicted basically, like those black swan events or things that sometimes happen when we think right, we so know the, everything. The concrete things you should be doing are almost always smaller scale trials until you're ready for a bigger scale trial. But we can still be thinking about what directions we're trying to go. And sure. so an interesting question is really, how much hypocrisy can we expect to get rid of and how hmm. much will we expect to keep? And that's somewhat of an open question. I mean, we know there are these groups that have tried radical honesty and we know that that works modestly well for the kind of people who are willing to try it, but it's pretty painful. Sure. So we're not sure how far the rest of us can really go down that path. Let's talk some about some of those uh, small scale tests and experiments, because there are some fascinating ones. I think with schools and early wake up times, this is something that's very important to talk about. So Dr. Matthew Walker from the University of Berkeley, he always cites this one study, I'm blanking on the state's name, where they... I think set back school wake up times by an hour or two hours or something. And the result was a 70% reduction in uh, young people's like car crashes and things like that. But basically by setting back wake up times, we can help stop car crashes. Is that accurate? Or what do you think about wake up times? What you're describing fits with what I've heard, but it hasn't been one of my focuses or expertise. But you know, the pushback I hear is that, well, actually school wake-up starting times are pretty deeply integrated feature of a big complicated system. And so this is one of our major obstacles in real innovation in the world is that most of the time we can't just change one thing. We have to think about changing a bunch of things together. And then we have to ask to what extent when a bunch of things work well together, are we willing to try to mess with it and change it? So for example, I'm told that uh, school bus drivers have three shifts of three different sets of kids they take to school and uh, why the teenagers are the earliest shift, but school budgets are limited. So if it's not the teenagers who are the first ship, somebody else is going to be the first ship or we're going to pay more for bus drivers. Similarly, you know, many parents uh, have these 
kids going to school at a certain time and then they leave off for work. If the kids go in later, now the parents have to go in later. It, seems, it still seems like we should be making these changes, but it does seem like that in fact, large bureaucratic state-run school systems are just harder to make those changes. So in some sense, this early school penalty that we have for teenagers is really a penalty of this large bureaucratic school system. If it was more independent schools that had more varying starting times and locations and rules, there would be less of this disruption because uh, you could switch to a different school with a different starting time, et cetera, right? And so this is more of a, a question about to what extent are we becoming entrenched in large complicated systems that we find it hard to change? That, that's more a fundamental question about long-term change. And many of the kind of social practices we have are similar. So schools certainly entrenched. We have this large complicated hospitals, medical system, somewhat entrenched. And actually, this is what a big thing I'm worried about our era today is that we are slowly accumulating cruft and uh, interdependencies that make our systems more fragile and harder to innovate. Couldn't agree more. And you mentioned something earlier. I want to circle back to it because I'm fascinated by it and just starting to explore it, which is prediction markets. So there are some new ones on blockchain that I think everyone should be should approach very cautiously, but they're still fascinating. So you're a pioneer in that field. When did you first discover prediction markets and what makes you so excited about, about them? Well, this is actually related to the theme of the book because one of the puzzles that I was struggling over over my career in economics uh, that I'm trying to explain in the book is the lack of interest in these institutional innovations. So I talked about how we have better ways to teach kids or better ways to run hospitals and that people don't seem to care very much. Uh, relatedly, we have better ways to aggregate information and make forecasts, and yet people don't seem very interested. And that was one of the puzzles that I was struggling over in thinking about this book. Predicting the future at accurately, for, the, for those of you who are listening, is a highly sought after skill. You can be compensated very well if you can learn to predict the future accurately and then help create so, it. But it's not true, <laughs> honestly. Uh, well, it depends on it depends on what type of games you're playing. Let, let's let's just change the. So, if you're a business owner or a venture backed company, there is a there are some people who are looking for people who can accurately predict the future. Let's just say that. Well, if you have the status and reputation that everybody should expect you to predict accurately, that's worth a lot. Yes, actual yes, very, track record of true. predicting well doesn't necessarily produce that status, and having a track record that fails to produce accurately doesn't necessarily undermine your status as someone who does predict accurately. So right. the financially valuable thing is to have this status as the sort of guru everybody should turn to to get advice. And in that action, they tend to act as if you are an accurate forecaster, but they don't actually check. Which might give you more swings at the bat, right? To actually get one prediction right that turns to be a breakout. For example, lawyers. Most people say that they hire a lawyer so they could win their case. But you know what? When people hire lawyers, they almost never know the track record of that lawyer, like what cases they won or lost in the past. Yes. The lawyers don't even bother to collect track records because so few people ever ask. Nobody asks. Yeah. So even though you say you want a lawyer for the track record, you don't bother enough to check. So they don't actually have a very strong incentive to have a good track record. What they have a good incentive is for everybody to say they have a good track record. So lawyers are very much incentivized to have prestigious law schools and prestigious organizations they have jobs for that would give people the impression, well, sure, they must have hired them for their good track record because uh, look at the, what a great job they have. But in fact, they don't actually check 
if they've done a good job winning cases. And that's, this is sort of thing is true all around the economy in forecasting as well. People talk as if forecasting was important, but it's not quite as important as they say in the sense that they don't actually check. Gotcha. What's more important is this image or impression or status of the sort of person who predicts well. And so, so it suggests that it's really about the status. It's really about the consensus that this is, you're the expert and you're the guru. That's the valuable thing. And people have to pretend that it's because of your accuracy, but it may not actually be because of your accuracy. Most likely because it isn't because in fact, people don't know your accuracy. Right. And I think that is what is one of the hardest things about doing business or collaborating with someone on a research paper or anything basically is it's very hard to tell what someone's track record actually is. You can find people vetting or you can find people basically saying this person's great to work with, but it's very hard to drill down into what someone has actually done or what someone has actually produced, especially if they're a member of a company or a university or a, a complex system. What strategies do you use to kind of cut through the noise and see what someone's track record is? What's your thought process? How do, how do you think about that? I'm not very good at that. I mean, I'm not actually called on to do it much, so I can't claim much expertise. Obviously, in some areas, there are track records and you should look them up. So like mm -hmm. weather forecasters actually have track records and sporting uh, stars have track records and people like that. You know, if they've had a lot of cases, you might be able to look it up. Even academics, they might have published a lot of papers. You know, you don't know if they're good, but you know how many there are. If you have a person in front of you, you know, a key, a key question in life about judging people is whether to judge them based on this larger social consensus about their social status or whether to judge them on the basis of what you see right in front of you. So I happen to come from this physics background initially. And in physics, the norm was what we claimed to do was judge people right in front of us uh, and not to take too much weight on supposed credentials and other you know, things people give. That's kind of a nerdy, techie sort of a, a stance to take about people. Now, it's, it's somewhat fiction in the sense that people do weigh all these other things. But in interacting with people, they're supposed to pretend like, I like you because I just like the way I, what I hear from you, right? You're sounding smart, you're sounding sharp, this is making sense. Sure. And um, yes, you came with these credentials, but as soon as we had five minutes of conversation, I didn't need those anymore because I was just listening and, and this made sense. Right. That's the kind of image we like to project. It's not really true in the sense it's really hard after five minutes to judge someone. But of course, that is the thing that would be nice to do is to just have ways to directly judge people immediately in per person. And you know, I have to sense, say that I just have the habit of trying to do that. But of course, when my judgment disagrees with this larger social consensus, I face the question of whether to act on it in any way that would be publicly visible. <laughs> because what if I defy this consensus? What if I say, he's a bozo. I'm sorry, everybody says he's great, but he's a bozo. Or conversely, okay, I know people say, you know, this guy's a low status, but this, this guy has promised, this guy's sharp. And it's, that's a tough choice to make because, you know. It's an extremely tough choice. It might, be, it might be that it doesn't that much matter whether this person really good is bad. What matters is the consensus about them. And what other people care about is whether you go along with that consensus. And they yeah. don't that much care about whether this person really is good or bad. They care that you go along. Yeah, it's, I had a conversation recently. Someone was asking about a really well-known media personality that is we associate with knowing a lot about science and things like that. And I'd had a really weird interaction with that individual when I uh, talked with them after an event. Super weird, super off-putting. And there's this, this tendency where I wanted to bring it up, but it's so, it was so off-putting and weird 
where you're like, what are the costs of this? I'm going to sound like a hater. I'm going to sound ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's a very real phenomenon. It happens all the time. And I wish there was an easier way to run that calculus. Um, I don't know. From if we'll, my point we'll of view, if, out, I, if I have any sort of initiative, uh, my, my simple strategy is get people off their script. Whoever you're trying to talk to, if you're trying to evaluate them, just get them off of any script they could have anticipated. And it doesn't that much huh. matter where you go. As soon as you're off script, they have to be thinking on the fly here. And you'll be able to do a lot of evaluation of how they're doing thinking on the fly. Uh, I like if, that. If it's the script they're on, if it's a talk thing they've talked about many times before, uh, they've got a whole speech or they, they've already studied the thing you're supposed to say, you know, you're not judging you, them. You're judging the ability of them to give the speech. Yeah. You just have to get them off auto, autopilot. Right. <laughs> into real, real person. Which mode. is why it's, it helps to just talk about weird things. Yes. So uh, speaking of weird things, you're, the video behind you right now is of your office and it is uh, you have books everywhere. There are papers everywhere. I love that. I don't like there. There's this whole phenomena, especially out here in uh, the Bay Area, where people have pristine offices and people have these great workspaces that are spotless. Do you think creativity requires, you know, meticulous care and organizing and tidying up, or do you think creativity requires chaos? Well, let's just start with creativity, and does anybody like it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so creativity in our society is one of these things we all give lip service to. And we all say that we like creativity and therefore we all pretend that we want people who have creativity. And but people hate change. It's not true. And so, for example, schools consistently crush creativity out of kids and they're Agreed. designed in part for that purpose and they successfully do it even though teachers will say they like creative kids, they, they, they don't. And similarly, employers on average don't, for most positions, most employees, they don't want creative employees. Creativity is error from their point of view. Sure. You're looking for somebody to very reliably perform a, a task and variance on that is not welcome. Now, there are some particular jobs and tasks for which a certain range of creativity, if you're an ad person and you're supposed to be creative about the ads, you're not supposed to be creative about what shoes you wear or what time you show up to the <laughs> office or whether you show up on time to your meeting with your clients. You're not supposed to be creative about those things. Sure. You're just supposed to be creative about a limited set of things you're supposed to do. So similarly for right. researchers, you know, there's a certain kind of creativity it would be good to have, but mostly not. So the, the basic fact is we, we pretend and give lip service to creativity far more than we actually like, even though of course creativity is socially valuable overall. I mean, it helps, but um, that's a whole nother story. Creativity isn't actually as important for innovation as people tend to think. Uh, other mm. factors tend to matter more in innovation. You have to have some creativity. So what factors tend to matter more? Well, so uh, right from the start, innovation is uh, invention plus diffusion. And invention matters less than diffusion. <laughs> so invention gets all the celebrations, gets all the, the cultural praise. The most biopic stories of people who are innovators are about the invention part of it. But honestly, diffusion is what matters more. Diffusion makes a bigger difference in terms of you know, what happens. Marketing and sales teams don't get a lot of love there. <laughs> right. But, but diffu I mean, one person invents them, but you know, hundreds of people will diffuse it or not. And it's those diffusion actions that make a huge difference. So for example, not invented here is an enormous problem. If everybody celebrates invention and doesn't celebrate diffusion, then everybody's trying to be the inventor and nobody will do diffusing. And then you get a lot of repeated invention without much diffusion. What hmm. you want is uh, something to be invented and then diffused so that it invents lots of people use it. To do that, you need to celebrate the diffusers. People who look at somebody and say, you know what? That's better than anything I've done. I'm going to dump what I've done and take that. 
which is basically the uh, the the unknown history of most successful technology companies. Um, not many people realize that most companies' financial success is based on a series of acquisitions, successful acquisitions that they then roll into their core product. Uh, Google's famous for this. Apple, like I mean, you name it. Whether they Apple was in, inspired by Xerox Park or uh, Microsoft, Bill Gates, they were inspired by Xerox Park. Uh, that's where they got a lot of their ideas. So that's an excellent example. Robin, let's shift gears a little bit. We like to have a kind of a lightning segment at the end of each interview where we hear about what you're reading, writing, thinking about. So what's your favorite fiction or nonfiction book that you've read in the last year? Watership Down. Okay, cool. Which I had never read before. And it was really quite good. I was was very impressed. Are you looking at rabbits differently now? No, not rabbits, but... uh, (laughs) Sort of the uh, sort of an essential story of uh, civilization or or the essential adventure. It's uh, very compelling and cool. uh, done very well. So I've always liked science fiction, but you know the more I learned about the world, the more less realistic most of it became. And so I've always been stuck on this edge of liking realism, but also liking you know variety and unusual situations. And so it's really great to find a combination where you where you have this unusual scenario that you're exploring, but then you do it really consistently and carefully. And yeah. then you just have all the story value you could imagine. And wow, I go, great. So we might mention, so I have this other book, The Age of M, and, and I attempted to do something similar there in the sense of I attempted to take the standard technology scenario and uh, assume a certain kind of technology with a certain cost structure and then just work out all the consequences as consistently and carefully as I could. Because I'm interested in knowing, well, what would really happen? So Watership Down is that, is that if you just take rabbits and you say, so they can talk and they're smart and you say, nothing else really changes, go. And you try to work out this whole story, you know, this guy did it. And he had a very compelling story. I, I don't have a compelling story in Age of M. I just have a consistently worked out social scenario. And those social scenarios and uh, thought experiments are, are really important because I, I feel like sci-fi is... Uh, is missing a lot of the more plausible ones that we need to kind of like prepare for or uh, the ones that we need to be worried about basically. So any other writers that you're excited about, Neil Stevenson or any any other books? So my updating my opinions on science fiction hasn't been very fast lately in the sense that I I read a lot of science fiction a long time ago and I got, you know, a lot of things I liked and over the time and over years I I keep up somewhat, but mostly there isn't that much new that really grabs my attention. You know, so uh, three body problem is of course a popular book sure. and I read it, but you know, I had some complaints. Uh, you know, when I write a science fiction book, I like enough to read it through and think about, I tend to write a book review <laughs> and then I'm complaining about how it's unrealistic. And usually it's just, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, that's the disappointing thing. And surely like these authors know the unrealism too. I'm not, I'm not telling them anything new. <laughs> so basically, you know, I'm, I'm at the point where I know basically how they're going to be unrealistic. <laughs> And I know that they kind of have to be from their point of view to sell books. And therefore, I'm not learning that much about like what things would really happen because they're just not trying at the level, right? Because gotcha. the, the, their incentives are to tell a compelling story to an audience who doesn't know as much as, say, I do about how the social world works. And so why should they be any more realistic than the readers? Gotcha. That's a, a big challenge for sci-fi writers out there. Um so what was so also you... a challenge for other futurists to, to be honest about it. Sure. <laughs> most futurists are also not being very careful because most audiences for futurists are also not very discerning. 
So what about on your the home screen of your phone? Do you have a smartphone? And if so, are there any apps that you're using and uh, loving right now? I'm not very creative about searching for new apps, I'm afraid. I, I'm not, I'm not much of a fashion standard, really. I guess you're going to say. So this, this is an interesting sort of point about, say, futurists or people focused on the future. I have a lot of futurists I know who say I follow them on Facebook or elsewhere. And they call themselves futurists, but they're really obsessed with the latest news. <laughs> they're obsessed with the latest demo, the latest app, the latest gadget the latest uh, science result or whatever. And in my mind, that's not being a futurist. <laughs> that is, that's a very short-term focus. It might be about cool, innovative stuff, but it's still a short-term focus. I think of myself as a long-term futurist. I want to focus on the long-term trends. Uh, something happens this week, not well. I really want to be paying attention to. <laughs> I want to be looking at, e at the longer trends. So, so more specifically, I've actually been working on the future of AI, but I've been focusing on the past data to draw on being software, our history of software. Now, there have been some more recent developments in AI, uh, deep learning, and some people are so enamored of those recent developments that they think the future of AI will be all about deep learning and everything we've learned about software will mostly be irrelevant. And that seems to me to just go way too far <laughs> with the latest thing. You know, we've had this large history of software for a long time, a lot of different kinds of software, a lot of different applications, a lot of different structures with, you know, gives you a pretty large experience base to go for to talk about how future software could be. And yes, each new kind adds to that picture, but to sort of throw away the entire data before that and just say this one new thing is going to be everything, I, I think that's off. And so, and similarly, when I look at the, the future, if I say, hey, there's a new app, a new social media app, it's a little different, it has these new features, that isn't, just can't change my view of hu human interactions over the next decades very much. They're still struggling just to understand the basics of human political behavior, human romantic behavior, work behavior. Sure. I'm still just trying to know why do people go to work? Why do people fall in love? Why do people get mad? There's still a lot of things we don't know about these very basics. And it, it seems crazy to me to get too wrapped up in the latest new gadget, which tells you a little bit about the world, you know, App A versus App B got popular. Well, it tells you a little bit about people apparently like something related to App A, at least in the context it was in. But if you get really obsessed with that latest fashion, you're just missing the big picture of data. And it sounds like you see all this low-hanging fruit that's around that nobody seems to want, right? They, whether it's studying examples from recent history or whether it's studying software development for figuring out what trends are coming in AI, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit left. Well, with respect to my goals. And so now we come back sure, to the sure. elephant in the brain. Yeah. Most people talking most of the time are trying to be part of a current fashion world. Most hmm. media commentators, most tech inspirational speakers, most academics, uh, most pundits, most politicians, most CEOs even, they're all trying to be part of a current conversation and seem to be up on the latest. And that, that intense desire be seen as up on the latest, not behind the times, cool with the current conversation, showing loyalty to your side of whoever you see your side as. That's an enormous, intense desire that most people feel, which is somewhat at odds of just fundamentally understanding the world. If you want to just fundamentally understand, you need to not pay so much attention to the latest fashion and just look at basics. So like my colleague, Brian Kaplan said long ago, which I completely agree, you know, if you want to understand the world, Stop reading today's news. 
you know, wait at least till it's been a week summarized, probably a one month or even a year. Just if you looked at the summaries of a, the last year consistently over 20 years, you'll know a lot more than by reading sure. the news every day. The news every day isn't very processed. It's uncertain. It's really focused on, you know, in the moment. But summaries of the last year is going to be much more thoughtful, much more integrated into a larger perspective. And, you know, that's what you want to understand the world is these, the largest patterns, the largest, most consistent, strongest patterns that you can see. That's what you want to know about. You want to have our best theories. If you don't want to get too lost in in the local fluctuations of this or that other little thing. Yeah, getting distracted with the daily news is uh, not helpful to accomplishing things that are going to take a long time. So Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Is there anything that you would leave our audience with, whether it's a challenge or a call to action or something you've been thinking about recently that you would like to leave them with? Well, I'll just say I've been describing this difference between what most people do and their usual motives and, and this alternative that you could be, you could just be different. I'll just say, it's not so hard to be different if you're willing to just do it. It's not like everybody's going to come down on you and crush you or something. You know, most of us are rich enough in this modern world to have some free time that we aren't, you know, some slack, some scope, and you have a long life. And in this long life with a lot of resources, there's a lot of things you can do if you will just consistently do them. There's a lot of think topics you can study, puzzles you can puzzle out and work out a lot of just big, important questions that are just neglected and not touched because everybody's so stuck trying to be the latest fashion thing. Uh, So, you know, you can do it. I love it. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. And to everyone listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.